Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Most of you will know Chris Freilich as a partner in the VC firm First Round Capital here in New York City. But Chris was also heavily involved in two key companies that we'll be talking plenty more about over the next year, Half.com and Delicious. In this episode, Chris gives us the history and the context for these two innovative companies, as well as sharing some stories from an interesting career, stories that range from competing against Michael Dell to sell computers in the 1980s, the true success of eBay in the late 90s and early 2000s, and even launching TED Talks online. I know you're going to enjoy this spectacular episode with Chris Fraley. Chris Fraley, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Pleasure to be here, Brian. Well, so as you know, we try to get a little bit of background, and, and my cliche question to everybody is, were you into computers as a kid? But let me switch it up a little bit and say, or ask, when you were a kid, what did you imagine you wanted to, to do with your career and, and, as an adult? I think as I was going into college, for some reason, I thought I wanted to be into hotel management because I like staying at hotels and nice places. But uh, I was exposed a little bit to computers through my dad. Uh, through his company was the first chance that I got to work with computers. In high school, they were off in a separate room. They didn't let uh, the regular kids, only the smartest kids, got to play with computers. Uh, with the early PCs, but in college I got a chance at my dad's company and and then on my own to really start working with them and eventually had a, a CPM-based Columbia Data Products product back in 83, 84 in my dorm room at Villanova. And it was kind of like a halt and catch fire kind of time frame. Uh, it was before um, MS-DOS was massive and uh, and I had that and played with it and it was pretty unusual for anyone at school, much less a business student. And then luckily, through that and good connections, ended up working in the, you know, in the computer reseller world for a decade right out of college. Uh, if I'm wrong about this, uh, well, first of all, you, you actually managed a computer store, a retail store, right? Correct. And that was uh, in your hometown, Jonathan's Computer Centers or something like that? Yeah, in Philadelphia, I went, you know, it was uh, the local three-store chain it was one of the first handful of Apple dealers that were authorized in the late 70s, and uh, myself and two other Villanova buddies all went to work selling PCs, and I became the manager of one of the stores. Imagine that, computer retail. Um, yes. <laughs> but you, you, as you say, you do, you do go into selling computers in the, in the early 80s, and this is, if I'm wrong about this, I'll take it out so as not to embarrass myself, but yep. you might might have a fun story about competing with uh, another kid selling computers yeah, around this time. No, that's true. Uh, so I, I started selling computers on the retail floor of this place called Jonathan's. Over the 10-year period, I, I worked at a variety of uh, different computer resellers that focused more on corporate sales and, uh, you know, through the process, learned all the above, including managing teams and getting up into bigger volumes, and I remember back in 80, probably 85 or 86, uh, I had my big customer TV guide, who was in Radnor, Pennsylvania, had bought a 
dozen or so IBMs from me and I delivered them well and I thought they were happy and I was bidding on a hundred PC orders. It was the biggest order you could imagine in my life. And I lost the order and I couldn't imagine why. And I went to my guy and he said, um, yeah, we ended up getting this uh, thing called PCs Limited uh, was the brand and it was from a kid who turned out to be in his dorm room in Austin, Texas and it was Michael Dell and it was later Dell Computers and I it was out of the blue I never heard of like how could you buy something through the mail you have to come into the store and have a salesperson like me and and uh, you know Dell changed the industry and you know the the computer reseller channel retail channel virtually disappeared and then now it's kind of back in life in favor with Apple stores and and the like but uh, it was you know back in the day that's how it all worked did you ever hear the story did he just out hustle you or something. I don't think he. I don't think there's any story from his side. He was just kind yeah, of growing, yeah. and, and uh, you know, he, he was probably selling IBM compatibles for thirty or forty percent less than I was selling IBMs. Um, but uh, but I, you know, I, I did get to meet him once over the years. I don't think he recalls that story. Right, <laughs> probably not. Um, but you, so you're generally selling um, PCs, uh, compacts, IBMs, what? IBM's Apple's compacts. Mm-hmm. I started when the Apple two C came out and the and the Macintosh one twenty eight. It was mm-hmm. both in nineteen eighty four and kind of built up through products, uh, like notably like Compact came up and grew into the fastest growing company in the and that had to had a hundred million in sales ever at the time. Uh, IBM came out with the PS two architecture and then it was interesting, I was uh, I'm heading to the TED conference and I found uh, something was written up at the first time I went in nineteen ninety. And uh, I had some stats that in 1993, I was responsible for the sale of over 5,000 computers to the three customers that I worked with. Uh, one of them was Eli Lilly, and it was their first uh, Salesforce automation project. And they bought something like over 2,000 um, Dell, I'm sorry, Compaq um, portables. And it was the first time all their salespeople got laptops at once. And so we, we delivered all that through uh, Computerland at the time. Right. So uh, you end up uh, in the early 90s, you're at Computerland. Just just as an aside, uh, coming up through sales like that, do you think that's a good lesson for, for entrepreneurs to have, like, to have the sales background like that? Yeah, I think, I think it's, a, it, it's been very useful for me. So I come from a, a, a hardware and a, and a, PC and channel background, but always a sales and a business development background, and I think that's a that's a that's a non-traditional. It's, it'd be hard to find a lot of uh, investors today, or you know, to to a large degree, founders of companies that come up through a sales background. They tend to come from more of a of a technical background, right. engineering background. So I think it's unique, but I think it's it's served me well. Um. After Computerland, I stop me if I'm skipping over any important lessons or anything here. But um, how do you how do you go towards Oracle? Because I think it's at Oracle where you start to get involved in internet things. So um, you know, again, I'd say probably around the 1993 or so time frame, 93 or four, you start to sense things starting to change, and like through 95, uh, when the internet bell rung with the Netscape IPO and everyone asking if you've, you know, tried Mosaic and 
and you know, got a sense of the internet. There were a lot of things in flux. Like I remember my, you know, one of my papers as I was finishing up graduate school was about you know the information superhighway. We kind of thought that's what it was going to be, but I was generally you know I I started going to the TED conference. That's where I eventually met Josh Koppelman of Half.com and now First Round and and when I started reading Wired, like I remember when it first came out, I bought like 10 issues and I gave them away to everyone because I thought it was the most interesting thing happening. And it was all tying into the internet. And a, and a friend of mine uh, was working for Oracle and he called me and said, uh, we've got a job. It's basically selling you know, our new internet products to the likes of Time Inc. and Warner Brothers and AOL as as customers, would you be interested in that? And it was a dream job. Like I was interested in. Had you not in, been in the Valley before that? Uh, I was always in the East Coast. Uh -huh. I later on moved there for a little bit with eBay, but always been, you know, Philadelphia, New York mm -hmm. corridor basically. But uh, that was the that was my first like full time job in the internet. And I remember like when the when the Netscape IPO happened, I I don't think I verbalized it, but I was essentially committing my career to the internet. Like mm. everything I've done ever since then has been pretty directly tied into that and um, and the first like full-time job commitment was was with Oracle selling the likes of those companies and I, I remember I listened to your episode with Paul Sagan about Pathfinder I was mm -hmm. in the basement of Time Inc watching those guys work and talking to them about how an Oracle database could help them build and scale faster and better so that's uh, at Oracle that's what you're working on is is uh, as the internet's exploding, getting the Oracle's databases and stuff tied into what people yep. are doing, yeah. And it was uh, trying to build the you know the backend systems and databases that could tie into the web servers, and um, you know it, it was it was early. Day. Everyone was interested in talking about it, mm -hmm. and they knew they had headed in that direction. And uh, you know, ultimately, a lot of them bought a lot of databases uh, to to support all their development. Let me take another sideline here to ask a question that I ask a lot, but you brought it up. So do you remember the feeling there's the famous Mark Andreessen quote when he gets out there that Silicon Valley was kind of dead, you know, like before Netscape happens, you know, there was the recession of the early nineties and, and there's some quote that no one had had a good idea since Larry Ellison had decided to grow a beard. <laughs> I heard that. I thought that was hilarious. Do you remember, do you remember that sensation of, okay, there's something coming, there's something new on the horizon. No, I guess I was uh, lucky enough to be so far away from it. Like, when I would when I would go out west, it would almost be like, you know, visiting the Holy Land. Like, it was, like, I was, I felt so honored to be able to go to Apple's headquarters in Cupertino or to go to, um, you know, like, I, I got an early visit to Wired Magazine and early days and I just literally thought that was the center of the universe and so cool so uh, so I didn't I, I didn't have that perspective of being in the valley and feeling like there was not much mm -hmm. going on it, was, it felt mm -hmm. pretty exciting from afar as I got to came, come and visit it but but as you say your your sense is that the internet is the next big thing and I'm gonna tie my career to this yeah and again like you don't, you don't realize it at the time but like there were things you know interactive TV was something that was a big head fake at the end of the day then um, uh, you know, people were very excited about CD-ROMs. Mm -hmm. like that was that was a big deal. Like and I pen was, computing. And pen computing. Like yeah. I, I remember, mm -hmm. like I, I found out about TED because I was at the Mac World in 1993 when the Newton came out, and and I saw 
a video and it was Jaron Lanier of virtual reality fame in a video with, you know, his dreadlocks and the gloves and the, and the, and the goggles. And I stopped in my tracks and said, what is that? And the guy said, oh, it's a thing called the Ted conference. It'll never happen again. You should buy these videotapes and you can watch it. And I did. And then I found out it's happening and I ended up being able to go. And that was a pivotal, that was a pivotal moment for me and connected to a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of great people. Well, so let's career. let's talk about that now because we'll come back to TED, I think, again later. But um, so th- you attend your first TED conference in what, 94, 95? 94. Okay. Yes. And that's the original. It was TED 5. Uh-huh. It's, it's happening next week. So right. that's why I'm yeah. uh, uh, up to date on the history of it because I happen to look it up. But yeah. it was, uh, I, I applied in 93 and probably shouldn't have qualified. But one of my tricks was I actually wrote out the check for the deposit you know, for the full amount mm-hmm. of the conference and sent it in with my application mm-hmm. and uh, realized thinking that might help my chances. <laughs> right. And I remember I didn't have I didn't have that much money in my checking account, fourteen hundred fifty dollars. And so I had to write it on a line of credit. So I just thought that was a good investment if I could get into that conference and mm-hmm. uh, and I did and I went in ninety four and that was Ted five and I've been to most most of them since and then was work up working at Ted for a little bit too. And you've met uh, Josh there? Yep, it was through, uh, through a connection of, uh, of someone Josh used to work with, but um, soon after, you know, probably in the 95 time frame, I would guess, um, I, I met Josh and Howard, um, mm-hmm. who were the, you know, the founders of First Round, and Josh eventually later was starting a thing called Half.com mm-hmm. back in 99, and I'd stayed in touch with them mm-hmm. for a few years off and on, and uh, then we... That's how we first connected. Howard was an investor. We'll, we'll get to that. Yep. I, I want to do a little bit of credit to um, your time at AOL. Yes. And that comes right after Oracle? Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a funny story. So I was at Oracle calling on AOL. Mm. And there was a key, a key executive there at AOL who wouldn't, who would cancel my meetings constantly, like almost comically like it, I'd set up a meeting and it would get it canceled and so I set one up for far in advance and I set it up as a phone call to make it like less threatening mm-hmm. and it stayed on the calendar and then that morning I called this person's assistant and I said um, I'm just confirming our meeting and by the way you can tell them in the lobby if you'd like to meet in person I drove down from Philadelphia and the person like was so excited and burst through the doors and said Wow, you came all the way down here. Come on in, and and took a liking to me, and mm-hmm. ended up hiring me away from from Oracle and, to do uh, what? To work on AOL Enterprise, which uh, was a bit of an ill-fated idea. So back in those days, AOL had just shifted over from pay per hour dial-up mm-hmm. to all you could eat for I think it was nineteen ninety-five a month mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. like that, and that was the infamous busy signal right. problem, which they dealt with. I, and to my credit, I'd say, like, I, when I heard the busy signal problem, it bothered everyone else. To me, it was a sign that customers loved it. They could not live without it. They were so excited to get into it, and they could eventually fix that with more modems and other, I think, other I think things. I think Jan Brandt said that, too, yeah. Yes, and that was a great, that was a great podcast. I'd recommend everyone li- listen to that. But my job was to go and sell to businesses what were essentially empty airline seats during the day. If you looked at the usage of AOL... Mm peaked and spiked in the evenings and it wasn't doing much in the daytime and AOL had fixed infrastructure. Mm. So they were trying to go to 
corporations to uh, have them pay to use that service for dial-up for their employees. So and, just uh, ISP services for essentially like yeah. remote ISP uh-huh. services. And uh, the, you know, one of the challenges at the time was um, there were two major ones. One was uh, it was we were trying to charge by the hour for corporate customers when any individual could get all they could eat for a fixed price. So mm-hmm. that was a little bit of a hard value mm-hmm. prop. And the other thing was it was very slow. Literally every bit had to travel from, you know, the employee to Dulles, Virginia, to the servers, back to Dulles, back. And it was extremely slow. And I would, I remember coming back reporting that, like, you know, the CIO of Price Waterhouse basically, like, laughed me out of his office because mm-hmm. of all these reasons. And and so my, my time at, at AOL was not, not meant to be a long one. But, well, you know, uh, it's funny. Um there's you run into things like if you talk to people that were always in New York at some point you'll find out they were at DoubleClick there's five or six people now that I've spoken to that around this era 96, 97 they were all at AOL AOL hoovered up people because there was the AOL greenhouse and all sorts of things going on there was so much going on and it was exciting you know being there for a short time but also selling to them and being around them and uh it, it, it was truly the center of the universe, was in the main lobby in Dulles, Virginia, in, you know, in that period of time in the 90s. And for a while as a salesman, uh, you know, they would have physical write-in, you mm-hmm. know, people would sign in. And if you learn how to read upside down, which is an important skill if you're you know, a salesperson in those days, you could see which competitors and which other companies and startups were in the, you know, visiting AOL that day. And that stuff moved markets. It was like they were the kingmakers. Um, you know, I think I think at the end of the day they took advantage of the leverage that they had. Mm-hmm. And uh, but yeah, they for, had they had a reputation for they driving were, hard they were bargains. Tough, tough yeah. deal yeah. makers and very creative. And but they were, you know, they 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 got community content commerce before anyone else did. You know, Ted Leonsis was saying that. You know. A long, long time before it was cool today, and uh, uh, and it was you know again I've seen it over the years at different places from you know Google to uh, uh, to Facebook and others you know eBay was for a little while but like it was that was that was the center of the tech universe. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to see if I can shoehorn in here um, the Nextron Communications because isn't that would be the first true startup. That, that you work for is that right? Yeah, so that was that was uh, my first big failure at a company, and so like I, it was also my first foray into venture capital. So I went to one of their investors to find out about getting into venture capital, and the answer was, you know, it's really hard, and there's really not much opportunity here, mm-hmm. but you can go to work for one of our companies, and uh, you know, there, there were good people there, and I learned a lot. But what, it was, what did what did it do? Um, it was basically helping build websites for small businesses. So they would literally partner with phone companies mm-hmm. and, you know, the pizza shop would stuff an envelope with menus and pictures and logos and seal it and send it in. And then we would have people build that website for a monthly fee. Mm-hmm. It was very services intensive, mm-hmm. but it was, it was undercapitalized and there were a lot of things I just didn't understand well, kind there, of going into it. There had to be hundreds of, companies like that at the time yeah so. there were and like what I, what I learned is like you, you need to ask key questions about how much cash is in the bank and what's the you know what's the runway like at the time I didn't realize they literally had to go every month to their VC and ask for 
more money to make payroll mm-hmm. for the next month. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, it 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 didn't sour you because <laughs> so um, we're we're getting into half dot com now as promised. So, yeah. tell me tell me the story from your point of view of how you joined the half dot com project, and then we'll get into some of the the stories of half dot com itself. So, um, I had kept in touch with Josh and found him to be, you know, this brilliant young founder that I would try to help where I could, and he would help me with various things off and on. And I was, uh, I had read an article where he was mentioned in the Wall Street Journal and in the summer of 99, uh, just pinged him congratulating him on the article. And he said, hey, I'm starting a new thing. Do you want to have lunch and talk about it? And uh, and we sat down at, uh, you know, at a restaurant in Conshohocken, PA. And I heard about this used books, movies, and games idea. And thought it was interesting and I thought it was, you know, he was a really smart guy and I was, you know, just mulling it over. And then I was like driving home and I, and I, I, I literally got like this feeling in my stomach of like, wait, this is a massive idea. I've got to be a mm-hmm. part of this. And I, I pulled over to the side of the road and I pulled out my Palm 7 mm-hmm. with a little right. antenna right, yeah. and I tapped out a message to Josh saying, basically, I'm in. Like, I went in and, uh, and that was waiting for him when he got back to his office. And that was, you know, that wasn't easy to do back in that day. So right. that made a statement and, you know, ultimately um, joined as the, uh, you know, the head of business development at half right when we were, you know, it was the summer of 1999. The internet craze was all among, all around us. And uh, what turned out to be like a, a pattern. There were four people in the company when I joined, and that later happened a couple other times. Mm. Uh, but uh, you know, and had to had to figure everything out from scratch. And if uh, if you're interested, I found recently uh, my my pitch deck. I went in mm. to sell myself with a you know 20 page PowerPoint with all my thoughts about what half dot com, what was called half off at the time should do mm. and uh, how to think about it and how to get into To sell story. yourself to Josh? Or, yes, yeah. to sell oh. myself to Josh and to his investors. Uh-huh. And uh, uh-huh. I just, you know, it, it, it'd be something I'd recommend to young younger listeners who might be, you know, a way to stand out is yeah. to do some pre-work and put some thought behind something and yeah. show why you think you might be the right fit. Well, let's, let's stop for a second because, again, this is one of those things where if you weren't around to remember this sort of stuff, uh, what, what, tell us the idea, the basic pitch of what half.com was was going to do so um the the basic idea was uh you might buy a book and you pay retail for it and you read it once and it goes back on your shelf and you don't ever read it again and the idea that what if there was an easy way to buy and sell used books movies music we also had video games ultimately when, when we launched and um at the time, there was not there was barely a market for used in any of those categories. So there was, there was no research that would tell you the size of it. It was you know done in the there's no GameStop or store. Yeah. There was GameStop or you know Electronics Boutique and other some things like that, but they didn't used wasn't a big okay. part of what they do today. Used yeah. I would I would guess is half the profits of GameStop right, right now. It's a very important category, but at the time it wasn't at all, and. Um, you know, and so, you know, just just helping uh, promote the idea of 
where used could fit in, mm-hmm. and and also speed speed of purchasing and ease of purchasing was I also think the real key to it. Uh, and I, I didn't believe this, so I was in process of talking to uh, to Josh and joining Half that I did. I, I actually joined eBay mm-hmm. and I did my first eBay transaction, and I could not believe how hard it was. I I bought something. You know, I, I think I sold something. Sold a book just to see what that would be like, and I had to wait for the person to mail me a check, and then I had to deposit the check and wait for it to clear before I mailed the item. It literally could be weeks of time going and by. And if you're on the other side of that transaction, not only do you have to win the auction, but then you have to go through that process on exactly. the other so side. On the other side, it's a you know seven day auction mm-hmm. where you're like bidding waiting and like at the end of the day you might get outbid by a penny mm-hmm. and you don't get your item or and it was just so much friction on both sides they were mailing checks back and forth uh, once ebay mailed me a paper invoice telling me that i owed them like 35 cents and i just i just could not believe how manual the whole thing was and and you know josh's innovation in addition to use and the pricing advantage was uh, we created a catalog of every item so that if you were selling John Grisham's book, you didn't have to scan a picture and describe it and pull all the attributes up like a hundred people might do in the same day for the same book on eBay. We created a catalog so you could type in the UPC code of the ISBN number. Right, that's a key thing I think we should say is all these products that you launch with have yes. the, the, the barcodes on them. So it's you you can have a database and if everyone's selling a John Grisham novel, it's the same item. It's the same item and then in that case, like the one John Grisham item would have all the listings underneath of it grouped by, by quality, like is it brand new mm-hmm. or good or fair condition, and then by price. Mm-hmm. And it was the marketplace dynamics of, of pushing down price, encouraging people to put a lower price so that it would sell faster. Well, and the ease of posting because then you can pre-populate a database with photos of, say, the item. You don't have to take the photos yeah, yourself. Like, and like Literally, you could just uh, type in um, the ISBN number or UPC code, and we, we even uh, created and patented uh, a thing called cell phone, S-E-L-L phone, mm. where you could walk around with your mobile phone and punch in those numbers on a you know, an interactive voice response system and, and load things by taking your phone to your bookshelf rather than lugging your books over right. to your computer. The, the other the real insight was uh, that uh, that payments were all handled and intermediated. So, so half would take the credit card and then on the other end we would pay the sellers and it was just instantaneous. But you're not warehousing anything. They're still sending back we used and forth. To say it's not. It's not warehouses. It's people's houses. Gotcha. And, and so that was, you know, all that was the real was the real innovation. Because it's it's reducing the friction. It's more instant gratification for a buyer. I can get it yeah. in a couple of days. So and you, for the seller, I can so sell you, it in no time. You're a college student, and rather than buying this crazily overpriced book, you can you can get it, you know, in a really good version for. A whole lot less, and sellers could get value back for items that were otherwise just taking up space on their shelves. And you know, like certain categories, like textbook season for books, was just that's what you know drove the business for so long because the value prop was so high that books were so expensive. And we were on the crest of the DVD wave, like that became the biggest. Uh, you know, that that new format drove more sales of movies than. You know anything ever had in home, mm-hmm. home video, and 
we were right there at the right time. It all fit into little nice shipping packets at reasonable prices, and we, you know, you know, we had quite a business. And I think, you know, we were acquired very quickly by eBay, um, and I think we were we helped them get a point of view about where fixed price and ease of buying and selling became important. And when they bought us, there was there, there was zero percent fixed price, and today it's the vast majority of everything that happens on eBay. Two questions about that. First of all, I believe you guys launch really, really quietly, because obviously you're entering eBay's game here. It's, it's their market, and, and you're basically trying to disrupt them. So um, did, was that a, a, a major thing, like try to, try to launch once we're ready to launch, but until then, no one knows a peep about us? Yeah, we were, uh, we were operating in in stealth mode and high speed mode mm -hmm. um, from when I joined, which was probably August of 99 until we launched in January of 2000, um, the bulk of everything was built and done. And, you know, back, you know, and I think we had raised um, about $3 million in venture capital was, was about the dollars raised. And that was the time we took, but that was back in the day where we had to you know, part of my job was to get the licenses for the Oracle database and to buy the Sun servers mm -hmm. that would have to go on the racks that we would have to get space in. We would have to, you know, we had to, we had to integrate and take all these databases and get them into a form that worked. We had to build our own shopping cart. We had like, like there wasn't open source. There's there no cloud the computing. Yeah. There was mm -hmm. nothing like you had to build everything in Sunny. Uh, Sonny, Josh's co-founder on the technical side, basically had an incredible team to build all this stuff. And then, you know, my job was had a few roles, but one of them was to get all the inventory at launch so that we had product in stock. Because when you're launching a marketplace, it's two-sided. You need to have supply there on day one, so you don't have crickets chirping and mm -hmm. and uh, you know doesn't have the appearance of a lot of items. So that was a big part of what we did. My other question is. Um I mean, obviously, with retrospect, it seems this way, but was it pretty much inevitable that once you show eBay that, hey, there's a slightly different way to do your model, that they're just going to take you out? Like, that's the only, that was kind of the only route there. No, I think uh, in a lot of big companies, there's, you know, there could be an attitude that this, you know, these, you know, this young team did it for not a lot of money in a short period of time, so we can too, we're at eBay. Mm -hmm. But I think... They, they saw how completely differently mm -hmm. we had taken it, and uh, I think they, you know, I think they saw, you know, Josh's leader and the whole team, and how that could be, you know, how that could help with innovation right. and and uh, be an important part of, you know, of eBay. Right. I had read that that was exactly their thinking was that like we can do this in 12, 18 yeah. months, or let, we just integrate it now. Just bring yeah. them over and integrate it now. And I think like in, uh, I think they also probably had uh, fears of us getting into more and more categories. Like if we were just in the media categories, mm -hmm. that might have been one thing. But if, you know, we had plans and we're developing, launching into other categories, and that, you know, I think at that point, it, it really made sense for eBay, uh, for eBay to do it. So I'm encouraging you to, to toot your horn now because, so uh, Hap.com originally still is a separate site, but it starts to get integrated. And so what we know now as the Buy It Now button, that basically comes from your uh, 
integration into what eBay was already doing in the past. I'm not sure it's a direct descendant, mm -hmm. but I, like I said, like they didn't have anything fixed price or these buy ideas now. coming in. And I think we helped uh, set the stage or helped to thinking evolve on mm -hmm. on the benefits of that. And then it started like one of the you know we, we were we were acquired uh, in in the summer of 2000, and one of the one of the projects I, then I I became responsible for a lot of the eBay categories. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the projects that Josh and I worked on inside of eBay was bringing the catalog from half into eBay. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and so that was at the time was the biggest project that eBay had ever done mm -hmm. in terms of how they measure man hours. They did it in a system with train seats, but uh, that, that, was, that was a big project and we helped uh, shepherd that through. But other things like, you know, we had the first affiliate program that we used at half and ended up using it at eBay. We had, you know, you know, we were running salesforce.com before they were like, mm -hmm. maybe they would have done all these things mm -hmm. eventually, but I think it might've helped, you know, you know, helped it get started. Well, and, and, and buy it now becomes the majority of, of sales on the traditional eBay marketplace, right? Yes. So a good marriage. You, Very much so. Yeah. 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 It, uh, they, they tried to, Shut down the company at one point, and mm -hmm. the users wouldn't let it die. Mm -hmm. We had announced uh, we had announced that we were shutting down half because it was just not growing as fast as the rest of the business was as important. Right. And we essentially announced it was going down, took away all the resources, and it's kept growing. And so eBay did a rare turnaround of a decision and kept the site going that still is still alive today. Uh, something that I always am. At take time to point out is that people forget this, but eBay not only survived the, the dot-com bubble bursting, but it never stopped growing. No. And like in terms of measurements like stock price, market cap, like it reached heights after the bust that it yes. never reached before the bust. No, it was a, it was an island in a nuclear winter. Mm -hmm. Like the whole, the whole tech world is melting down, but, but eBay was one uniquely stable place that could attract the best talent you know, people were, you know, were CEOs at startups and coming in as uh, category managers at eBay, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, and there's a great, great group of folks that are that are still very active in the valley at a lot of different places today. Um, is there? Do you do you jump off of eBay because of Delicious, or do you take some time off and discover Delicious? How do we get to to, to Delicious? So I'd end up. Uh, in a bunch of roles at eBay. I moved out to California with my family for a little while um, and then came back east and then opened up the New York office for eBay and um, gotten into uh, the strategic partnerships group of eBay where we helped other brands market on eBay. Uh, one example was uh, 20th Century Fox did, a, did the first homepage takeover of eBay you know, as part of a, a of a marketing plan, just doing things like that and learning new things. But I was also had done it for six years and was interested in something different, and um, took a little break and was starting to pay attention to what had not been yet named, but was Web two O, mm -hmm. and uh, it was at another TED conference, TED Global mm -hmm. in Oxford, mm -hmm. um, probably in the in early two thousand six. And um, in one section of the conference, um, 
It was uh, Clay Shirky from NYU talking about crowdsourcing. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, and, you know, there were a few speakers, and one of the others was Jimmy Wales talking mm-hmm. about Wikipedia mm-hmm. in the earliest days. And mm-hmm. I had already been talking to um, Joshua Schachter and Albert of, uh, of Delicious, and it was, but I, I made that decision, like, coming out of that section of the TED conference that that's the most interesting stuff that's mm-hmm. happening on the web today. And this role would mean I'm in charge of business development at one of the hottest New York uh, startups that'll be dealing with all these other companies that I'm interested in working with. And I basically can't go wrong by taking this role. And I made the decision I wanted it right then. And, uh, so obviously we're not the, the, the first people to say this, but you know, in my mind, Delicious, Flickr, those were the two sort of clarion calls that, okay, there's stuff starting to happen again. There's new ideas. And I, I asked you if you could feel it when the bubble starts, but like, take me back there. Could you feel it? Because I can remember yeah. that so crystal clear that, okay, th- yeah. there's good ideas out there again. There's It, it was, uh, you know, again, like I think in, in some, you know, some negative ways, but like, Delicious was the poster child for Web2. Like, even in the funky way the name was written, mm-hmm. people couldn't even right. pronounce right, it right. 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 And, um, and everybody wanted to take meetings with us and to potentially partner with us. And uh, I, like, I remember, to me, the moment was we were at the, uh, the Web2.0 conference. Maybe it was the first mm-hmm. one or second. It was in San Francisco at what was the West End. I'm not sure what it is now. And before the conference, we had a pre, you know, pre-conference session where we had set up, and Joshua Schachter was going to be on a panel speaking about like what is tagging, like was something like that generic of a, of a title. Amazing, yeah. And I came into the hotel, and the line was outside. Hmm. It was all the way out, snaked around, and that that was to me a moment like, whoa, like mm-hmm. the people are truly, truly interested in this stuff. And, uh, you know, in the, in the short period of time that I was there, we went from, you know, um, you know, it, 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 you know, we gained users, notoriety, importance, and ultimately got acquired by, uh, by Yahoo. Talk about Josh just for a second. Cause I, Fred Wilson called him like the quintessential accidental entrepreneur because yep. he's literally just trying to solve a personal problem. He has all these bookmarks he wants to organize. Yeah. Um, so the, Delicious is, is in that mode, sort of like, uh, this, uh, this is just something I'd made for myself. Now, how do we turn it into something else? Yeah, so I guess, uh, like, you know, I think there's there's various layers of, of, of what how the product resonated to different people. And it clearly was Joshua at his first, you know, his personal problem of how he was managing, um, you know, bookmarks and links among his, you know, among his friends and for himself. And it literally was like this first, you know, server under his desk at home. And, um, and then he attracted attention of people like, uh, you know, Fred and Brad from Union Square, or Albert, who joined, um, uh, you know, investors like Esther Dyson. It had, it had good buzz of attracting people to sort of saw where the web was going. But I remember when I was interviewing, like I would, I would, you know, you know, he, he's a, he's an, Joshua's an engineer. He's like heads down. He doesn't, you know, suffer salespeople too gladly. And, uh, and like, you know, I'd have to like 
it gives attention to say like, so show me how do you like as a power user use Delicious at scale? Because I was still trying to get my head around mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. and and he'd show me, and I you know I became pretty proficient, and I, I like to use product a lot, and uh, you know, but like a, a like a breakthrough moment for me, and how did I describe it to partners um, w- was when we sort of talked about like it's you know like you'd say to a publisher like the Washington Post was a real example, like like you like how do you optimize for social it's by making sure all your pages are, are tagged mm-hmm. uh, in delicious with from your users and that was really the first notable um, commercial deal where we got to put a save to delicious button at the bottom of every single page of the Washington Post and now you can't go to every page has a mm-hmm. hundred mm-hmm. you know little things you mm-hmm. can do action button save them but it was the first one that I'm aware of at the time and Joshua and I were down in DC pitching them and and we uh, what I didn't realize when they made the decision to do it like that they were such a bellwether of the industry like everybody wanted to do what the Washington Post did mm. and then the, just the, you know, the influx kept coming we ultimately did a big partnership with um, with Mozilla uh, John Lilly who's now uh, at Greylock mm-hmm. was the COO at the time there and we did a big partnership together that essentially put us as a beautifully designed and heavily featured add-on um, Firefox. to the Firefox, Firefox extension mm-hmm. bookmarklet. And it was literally right at a time when every, like it was at a big, uh, like I think it was Firefox 2.0 was being rolled out or something that important mm-hmm. at the time. And when everyone installed it, the landing page most of the time said, now 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 install delicious and our usage, you know, users just skyrocketed right while we were raising money but ultimately getting mm-hmm. acquired. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, the marriage with eBay for half was a good marriage. Marriage with Yahoo and Delicious, good marriage? No, not really. I think uh, you know it was the right decision from the investor from the. Uh, the founder and the company at the time. I think investors would have much rather gone long and uh, done more. And in hindsight, there's a lot of things like it, I think Delicious could have been much bigger and more important. But it was it was a nice outcome, very quick quick one certainly uh, for me and others who joined Joshua. Uh, I don't think it it ever did what it was supposed to do inside of Yahoo, uh, mostly because it uh, you know they had so many other challenges. At the time, but it was, uh, you know, it was uh, the deal was led by Jeff Weiner, who's now running LinkedIn. Uh, they 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 rationalized the acquisition based on how they thought it would uh, make search results better in their competition uh-huh. against Google. Right. Uh, to have that, you know, corpus of important, saved, described, organized mm-hmm. uh, URLs. And I'm, I'm not sure they were ever able to prove that or make it happen. They ultimately sold it out. It was mm-hmm. bought. Someone else just someone else owns yeah, uh, yeah. Delicious now. I'm not even sure what it is. Right. Um, just pointing this out. So your your two big startup experiences are these rocket ships that are like 18 months, two years tops, and you know then they get absorbed. And like, is there some sort of a a lesson there about like the just the the rocket ship nature of some ideas that have to take off, and you have to you have to run as quick as you can. And well, I think um, I would admit luck is a 
they're mm-hmm. a good part of it. And I think I've, you know, I've, I've hitched my wagon to some smart people, mm-hmm. including uh, Josh and Joshua. Mm-hmm. And Josh Koppelman and Howard were both investors in, uh, in Delicious. So that was a good other connection. But I think, you know, I, I was part of, uh, you know, another startup that failed miserably and badly. And, uh, you know, but I think the, the thing that has worked well was when I, when I would go into a situation into a startup, knowing that it was the area that I was interested in, working with people that I really liked, and basically could rationalize that even if it failed, it would have been a good you know, place to learn and mm-hmm. to add value and, and contribute. And uh, you know, Delicious turned into a, a quick flip into, into Yahoo. Uh, half turned into a six-year mm-hmm. career at eBay, which you know, until first round, uh, and almost 10 years is, is, was the longest I've ever worked anywhere. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that, that worked, worked out very well, but, you know, but, but Yahoo being, uh, being, being acquired by Yahoo led me to, uh, a little bit of working at Ted again, but let's mostly look, working, you know, at first round. Let's talk, let's try to get Ted in here again. Yep. Um, because I believe, um, that you're involved in, uh, launching the TED Talks and getting them online and getting these videos online is, I'm just sh- shooting in the dark here, was it the, the YouTube moment when you're seeing that that video is, is this new distribution channel on the web and, and wanting to get involved in that? So, uh, it, it, you know, I, I've had the fortune of working some, for some amazing people and one of them was Chris Anderson who runs the TED Conference. It was his vision to take uh, what was this content at a once a year, you know, small conference in Monterey and unleashing it to the world and giving it away for free. And it didn't make sense. And mm-hmm. there were, you know, it, it was contrarian, but a fascinating idea. And it was 10 years ago. Uh, and it was his idea to this to... summer. It was his idea yeah. and initiative. And uh, I was, uh, I, I was in charge of partnerships and sales. So my job was ultimately, we got BMW to uh, underwrite the launch of of TED Talks, and it was their visionary involvement that helped, you know, help pay for it, and it's, uh, and I think it worked out very well for them. And uh, but like you asked, was it the YouTube moment? This was before YouTube. Mm. Like it was ten years ago, and I remember we would go and visit mm-hmm. um, Google Video, mm-hmm. which was mm-hmm. this odd, like oddly shaped uh, screen, at, and we were working with them. We went to Apple mm-hmm. and worked with uh, the folks there who did podcasts mm-hmm. and uh, and everybody kind of resonated. In fact, some of our companies, I was working part-time also for first round and some of our companies, one of the time Video Egg was actually the first company to stream the video when the first TED Talks launched. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, but, but ultimately the first six or so videos that launched really resonated. They're beautifully created and uh they resonated and got shared and got like it's the you know it's the thing that ted's mostly known for i don't know what the count is now but it's in over the over a billion yeah, yeah. um and, uh, are you guys surprised by that i mean you hear all the time I, I go to sleep every night i just put ted talks on in the background i fall asleep you know yeah i'm like i'm i'm, I'm surprised and you know proud that like this thing i had a little bit to do with became as as uh, as as widely known as it is today, I think just the concept of who would think people would want to learn, you know, what they would might think is boring, boring 
topics, but I think it's it's helped uh, usher in a whole new generation of of you know founder students, people with ideas of how to present properly, how to you know there's books that aren't affiliated with TED that are like how to give a TED talk, how right. to talk like TED, and uh, you know and, and and really I think raised up the quality of presentation and engagement mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, and it made again before there were YouTube stars there were TED Talk stars mm -hmm. and now and now it all it all mixes together. So obviously you're uh, best known today for uh, you know being involved in First Round and you know First Round is one of the premier uh, VCs especially on the East Coast but you know in the world at this point every almost everyone I talk to is is in VC now and I haven't really asked any questions about that side of it yet. So you're going to be my first experiment. If we if we have time, ten more minutes or so, I've got a couple questions. Yep. I might, but, we'll, I, but let, let's go. Let's All right. Try it. What is the what is the mental space when you go to the other side of the table? Like every you know every entrepreneur in her belly feels like her idea is going to change the world. The world just has to see it. Yeah. So when you flip to the other side of the table, what is the philosophical? philosophical change that you have to make to be successful on the other side of the table? Um, well, what, one thing is you, having, having worked on the operating side for two decades before starting, you know, starting uh, at first round is, and the events, and the investing side is you get such an appreciation for how hard it is mm -hmm. for the entrepreneur and, and, you know, no matter what we do as investors, uh, we we only deserve a very small part of the success of a company. And um, to try and uh, respect that dynamic about the founder and it's their idea. And, mm -hmm. you know, often, you know, we, we, we say no 99% of the time. It's just the math, uh, mm -hmm. the math of it. And... I'll often say, and I do believe, like, I'm wrong all the time. I very well may be right here, and I could rattle off a list of great mm -hmm. companies that mm -hmm. we didn't, we weren't smart enough to invest in. But hopefully to, you know, make sure that the, the entrepreneur has a good experience and is able to tell their story and that we're able to give feedback or insight or, you know, and, you know often make introductions or be helpful in other ways short of saying yes and writing a check. Mm -hmm. Final question then. Yep. Um, obviously with this project, I'm going back and I'm looking at history, I'm looking at patterns, and as it, most entre most VCs are previously entrepreneurs, so you have your experience, you have your previous patterns. What is more valuable to being a successful VC, having that previous experience, knowing those patterns, or finding an idea that goes against everything that you thought, all the experience you've had, and you think is a dumb idea, but saying, you know what, this might work, and, and, and taking a, a leap on something that seems crazy. Um, I think pattern matching is one of the advantages you get as an investor, is to learn over long periods of time what has worked and what hasn't. Um, that and your operating experience might give you um, too much experience, mm. or uh, sometimes you say we've got too much scar tissue. Like mm. if we mm -hmm. lost money on one kind of investment, it might yeah. make us think we never want to do that kind of investment. Um, 
again, I think the contrarian ideas that sound crazy, you know, like I'll admit like Airbnb, we, I didn't see it, but I would have told you that's the craziest idea on earth who would ever have done that's that. That's such a great example. But, yeah. um, but in retrospect, and really not until you actually use the product, do you really understand like how unique and how different it is. And I think what's true, you know, for some of our, you know, our best investments and, you, you know, you talk to other investors who were in Facebook, like they had an insight, they had their reasons, but I don't like they didn't know the scale of what those things would become ultimately. And I think it's also uh, like in venture, people tend to remember just the winners. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a lot of 2020 hindsight on why. You know, investments were made in mm -hmm. in these winners, but it's a you know it's also a humbling humbling business, and uh, you know the entrepreneurs are the ones that we have the honor of serving, and they're doing all the all the real hard work. Mm -hmm. uh, well, Chris Freilich, thank you so much for taking the time, remembering all that, and just fantastic stuff. And can I say thank you for the project you're doing? I'm a I'm a student of internet and tech history, and your, 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 your stuff is very valuable and I've really enjoyed, uh, uh, enjoyed it. And you do, do your homework and uh, it's, uh, it's great to be here. I appreciate it so much.